Welcome back, everybody. It's time to meet our community, the Hispanic business community here in Orange County. Powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio. Streaming live from our studios here at the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center. With our special guest... Well, I'll let you introduce him, Ruben. Who'd you bring in? Ruben Franco's with us today. Thank you. Yeah, we do have a very special guest, and I'll, uh, for full disclosure, uh, he's a fraternity brother of mine from UCLA from many decades ago. I won't say how many decades, but you'll probably be able to guess. David Newman. Uh, David has quite, uh, was quite a great friend. He stood up for me in my wedding uh, many decades ago as well. Very proudly. Yeah, thank you for uh, for doing that on that uh, gorgeous Seven uh, Eleven day. Uh, July 11th, but uh, uh, David's got quite an experience as far as uh, his background. He's he's high level of media, high level of entertainment, high level of political scene. Uh, he's just he's got a he's got a background that's very very unique in a sense. It's pretty well rounded, but he's just a great overall guy too. It's not uh, if you ever get the opportunity to meet him, he's just uh, one of the most down to earth people I know uh, for being kind of at the level he has risen to uh, in his uh, career. So, David, thank you for, for being here today. We, we appreciate it. And um, we always start the podcast by uh, just in, uh, asking our guest, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself personally. And just uh, we'll start with that. We'll start with that. All right. Thank you, Ruben. It's very gracious of you to have me here on the show. And it's a pleasure to be here for you and to share my experiences with your listeners and audience. People ask me who I am or tell me a little bit about myself. I always say I'm a kid from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I consider it such a privilege and blessing to have grown up there. It was a idyllic childhood that I had. <clears throat> the community was a safe and wonderful place to grow up. But I always had a dream of coming to Hollywood. I was absolutely obsessed with the entertainment industry, with movies and television growing up. And I, uh, you know, in my basement of our house, I would set up a TV studio, an imaginary TV studio, and shoot shows and host shows and produce shows. And, uh, you know, when I was in junior high school, people would ask me what I wanted to do. And I said I wanted to be a movie producer. I wanted to be David Selznick, which is the reference that I made. I read a book of his memorandums that uh, totally inspired me and I said I've got to get out to Hollywood and I want to be a movie producer so I came out here to go to school to UCLA but really with the intention of starting a career in the entertainment business and I've been blessed and fortunate and I'm still pursuing those dreams to this day yeah that's pretty amazing as we go through this conversation we'll people will get to hear some of those uh, things that you've been able to achieve so pretty pretty amazing and right out of UCLA, you did some great things at UCLA. You were head of campus events, right? Is that the name of it? Was right. That- I was, yeah, I was, the, there was a student organization that did the events programming for the campus that did the booking of guest speakers and concerts and a film series that was done, you know, in the, in the world before cable television and uh, streaming. Movies that weren't directly released in their first run in the theater or on the very limited uh, broadcast networks were often exhibited in second-run situations in college auditoriums and dorms and places like that. And we had quite a quite a big film series of second-run movies that we would 
we would program and they'd be usually in the student union maybe two or three months after they were originally released in theaters oh okay wow i didn't re- i didn't realize that that's pretty that's pretty amazing yeah and we also had an amazing concert series the year that I, the years that i was there we had the talking heads on jan steps we had the b-52s we had the pretenders there were a lot of huge groups at the time peter gabriel right the jam a long list of you know because it was a very a very exciting period in music when new wave was sort of the new genre of music and punk rock was kind of in its heyday and so there were all these new artists and all these new sounds and all these new recordings that were happening and, and of course college campuses was really the hotbed of that new music um, movement yeah it's funny you mentioned that because i when i see the movie old school and i see that scene where they're walking down jan steps i'm always reminded of the concerts we used to have there yes it was yeah pretty, there was, pretty amazing. yeah there was a concert it was in november of my freshman year we brought talking heads to jan steps and it was a funny story because i think i wasn't in charge i was a low level person volunteering with the organization at the time because i was a freshman but it was extremely you know we we kind of snuck it in saying hey there's this group and of course nobody in the administration had ever heard of talking heads and they were just a you know they weren't widely known but right. 10,000 people showed up wow. to the concert which was something that annoyed the Bel Air homeowners sure, and yeah. the campus had no idea that they were going to have an influx of that many people so uh, it was hard to uh, get those concerts approved after that but yeah. um, but it was really quite a scene and quite an event and a great concert did we have the police there yes well Well, yes the police were in i believe they were in akram no you know what i'm going to take that back i was so low on the totem pole that i was assigned the police concert because nobody had ever heard of them either and i went and i got free tickets to go see them at the whiskey a go-go because they were going to be coming to ucla so this was a little perk that i was given and you know the the whiskey which had a capacity of maybe 500 people was half full because that's how unknown they were at the time and then i think they canceled their concert on campus that was supposed to happen so i never got to produce that police show which would have been a wonderful experience but they did play locally but they probably just weren't big enough to uh to make an impact at that time a year later they were monstrously huge yeah and then um after you graduated because we went through graduation the same uh we did year in 83 yes we uh, walked around with those robes on that's right we did we did and then uh you became the youngest White House fellow, and believe it was in the Reagan administration. I did. I was really fascinated with uh, the presidency and the White House and government, and it was the only other big interest I had besides entertainment. And I, you know, when I was graduating, I, I knew that I wanted to pursue my career in entertainment, but I thought what was happening in Washington was very exciting, and I was a very pro Reagan, you know, student. And so the idea of working in the White House was really uh, alluring and exciting and interesting to me. And I had heard about the White House Fellowship, and I applied not knowing, being really naive and not really understanding that it generally wasn't for people my age. It was really the average age of a White House Fellow was about 30, and I was 23. But I applied because I didn't know. You know, one of the fun things about the Internet not being there was you really had so little information and sometimes that was actually beneficial Mm. so i applied not realizing it wasn't to be done but then the stars aligned for me and i must have impressed the admissions committees in some way and then eventually i just got very fortunate and got selected to be a fellow 
and I, I was the youngest at that time, and I think probably still am the youngest, and maybe that's not a good reflection on how I did, <laughs> but it was sure a great experience. What's uh, what was, Were you able to meet President Reagan at the time? Yes, or? I met President Reagan on my first day on the job, really? because I was oh. actually assigned to one of the president's closest aides as an assistant to him. Okay. So I met him on my first day, and most days that I went to work, at some point during the day, I was in a room with Ronald Reagan. It wasn't a small room usually. It was usually like a big room. Mm -hmm. You know, there were usually 30 people or 50 people or 300 people. But I saw the president physically almost every day, and that was something, of course, that I'll never forget. Wow. An experience that I'm very grateful for. That's pretty rare, because usually you're in the back office somewhere yes and most people and most people who get a white house fellowship they're assigned to a cabinet member so they're over in the department of agriculture or defense or treasury or and i happened to be you know in the i had a a pass for the west wing i had an office in the old executive office building next door and uh you know i was a, a bag carrier and didn't do anything really important but it was very very exciting and i was every day i worked on a briefing memo that the president would get every morning uh, at his desk and I would draft that briefing memo and uh, so somewhere in the Reagan archives there are all these drafts of these memos that I would write really? which were which oh. went to the president in the name of my boss and he would have the final editing authority over that that memo but it was it was exciting to draft something that you knew the president of the United States was going to be reading so you're in the archives Literally, right? Yes. In fact, they impressed on me when I got the job that every single thing that I did at the office was, you know, that that I wrote down was property of the government and it was a a violation of the law to not give it back. So we didn't have filing cabinets in our office. We just had Mm. an inbox and an outbox. And the outbox is where we put everything that had already been created. And that went straight to the central filing system, which eventually went to the archives. Uh, you didn't take any classified documents. I didn't take any classified okay. documents. I did have a classified. I I did have a, a top secret clearance, which was you know kind of amazing. Yeah, for for a young, kid. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't have dreamed of. Not only would I have not dreamed of taking any top secret documents, I wouldn't have dreamed of taking any, any documents. documents. There, right. there are probably laundry lists, literally, that I that are in the archives under my name because I was so frightened of the uh, of the. Of even the possibility of violating the law yeah. on that. Anything stick out to you in your time there in the White House? Yes, a couple of things stick out to me. One is that Reagan was so magnetically warm and charismatic. You know, you just looked, when he looked at you, you just were looking at a luminous character. And, you know, uh, he's to this day a controversial political character. But one of the things that people forget about Ronald Reagan was that unlike the political system that exists today and Mm -hmm. the political dynamics today, he was somebody that even his enemies couldn't help but like. They didn't want to like him, but it was impossible not to like him because he was a very gracious, authentic, and sincere guy. And he didn't, you know, he he felt like with famously with tip o'neill that he could sit down and have a beer at the end of the day even though they had their political differences and he also believed very much in reaching across the aisle and trying to find things that were of common interest and working together with people that were political adversaries and never making it personal and of course it's almost the antithesis of what 
it's like today. It is. So, you're, you're right. So that was fun. I think that I remember, and this is kind of sad given what's transpired, but I think I also remember the aura of the presidency was extraordinary. You know, there was such a respect that everybody had who worked there for the office itself. You know, Reagan wouldn't go into the Oval Office without his jacket on, because out of respect mm-hmm. to the office. Right. And I think that there was this ethos of those of us who were working there of this is a privilege, this is an honor, we've got to live up to the standards of the great, you know, presidencies of the past, and we have to conduct ourselves accordingly. And you just, there was no, people spoke to each other very respectfully, there was a real decorum an old-fashioned decorum in a great way right. to the office that I think just doesn't exist in the same way now. That's true. I mean, he, he had a, a fabulous uh, humor about him. And, and we actually, we used to go to church with him at Bel Air Press. We mm. used to see him and Nancy and stuff. And I remember one time he was, it was his birthday, and they brought out a cake for him. And Sam Donaldson, who was kind of his nemesis of people right. who don't know who Sam Donaldson was in the press... Reagan starts cutting the cake and he offers a piece of cake to Sam and you can Sam goes well do you think it could be buy me off for just a piece of cake Mr. President and he goes well Sam you've been bought off for a lot less than <laughs> yeah. yeah he you know Reagan was just amazing you know one of the things that I loved about him was his sense of humor and he didn't take himself that seriously right. and he and he was would would be loved to tell jokes at his own expense but one of my favorite stories about him was, you know, he was notorious when he was governor of California for his nine to five work day. Right. You know, and somebody said to him, Mr. President, you know, when you are inaugurated president, you know, the next morning, the national security advisor is going to be there to brief you at 730 a.m. And Reagan looked at him and said, well, he's going to have a long wait. <laughs> so that was that was, you know. I mean, he said, you know, again, you know, he was, people would criticize him about his work ethic. And he said, you know, they say that hard work never killed anybody, but I figure, why take the chance? (laughs) You do a very good Reagan stuff. Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty pretty amazing. Um, Picked it up while I was there. uh, Yeah, among other things. But yeah, thank you for sharing those stories. That's pretty amazing to to be able to work that closely with uh, an American president. And especially today, what you see with... What's going on? It's uh, it's kind of heartwarming to see that there was some kind of de- level of decorum at one at one point. Yes, uh, you know, um, yes, you know. To speaking candidly, um, one of the things that I really was horrified by the Trump presidency was the sort of jettisoning of all that protocol, of all that, of all those manners, of all that sort of dignity and honor to the office. It, it made me crazy, and I think there are a lot of people who worked in the Reagan administration that felt the same way. Yeah. There's been a few presidents, I think, that have, yeah. we can point to, but yeah, sure, you're right. So what, after you got out of the White House, I think you went to you went to NBC after that, is that correct? I went to NBC. I got uh, very fortunate to get admitted into their management training program. They actually had a program that would train new executive management types, and um, it was, uh, you know, competitive to get into, but I, you know, went through the various interviews and I was very fortunate to get hired. Now what's funny was it wasn't my first, second or third choice of a job. It wasn't even in the top 20 jobs because as I related to you in this conversation, I wanted to be a movie producer. Right. So I applied to every movie studio I was trying to get in to see everybody that ran the motion picture department at every major studio, but I couldn't get in. I I mean I, you know, maybe got a couple of courtesy interviews and things, but 
no job offers and um and so there was this opportunity in television which wasn't what i really wanted to do and this network was the dead last network of the three broadcast networks it was just in the doldrums by far the last place ratings network and i was put into the comedy department which is something i never thought of myself as doing and comedy was the dead genre at mm. that moment in time there were very few sitcoms on in fact there was even a big headline in variety a few months before i started that said is the situation comedy dead question mark and uh, grant tinker who was the chairman of nbc famously answered that question by saying yes until there's a funny one <laughs> um and uh one week after i arrived at the network a show went on the air called the cosby show yeah and absolutely. bill cosby in that show took nbc single-handedly from last place to first place within nine months that show was the number one show on television within just a few weeks and then the three shows behind it which the previous year had been the three lowest rated shows on network television one was called family ties oh, yeah. one was called cheers and one was called night court became respectively the second third and fourth highest rated shows on television because they followed cosby and of course we didn't have streaming and we didn't have 100 networks thousands of networks right. and we didn't have the internet and so you know if you put one show behind the number one show on television that show was unless it was terrible was going to be the number two show on television yeah so we had that going for us and it was a very exciting time and what i didn't understand was number one how much i would learn working in television how much working in television was a great background for doing movies or anything else right and so many people in movies start in television whether they're writers or actors or producers and then lastly the whole industry like what i noticed when i worked on cheers what i noticed was those writers were i thought i'd looked around i go to see movies all the time it was still my biggest passion and i realized you know the writing on cheers is better than the writing of any comedy film except maybe one or two maybe right. jim brooks when he did as yeah. good as it gets or something sure. Sure. okay that's but it's right up there the quality of the writing is right up there and I started realizing, yeah, the like the Kaufman and Hearts of today would be writing television. Yeah. And then of course, even in the eighties and then moving on into the nineties, the quality level of what was being done on television would just get higher and higher and higher. And the mediocre shows would start getting crowded out and there were more and more really first rate, beautifully produced, written and acted shows, and television just became more prestigious and it became and the, and it became creatively more exciting and now you know streaming essentially they're all but maybe three or four movie stars that haven't succumbed to right. doing streaming series because that's where the creative opportunity is the greatest right i think now. it's still tom cruise right and, yeah tom cruise there are a couple of holdouts yeah, a couple of holdouts and i don't even think they're holdouts for me tom cruise might be for old-fashioned reasons right. but they're mostly holdouts because they just want to do the very, very best material they can find. Yeah. So they're still finding it for them at the very top with films. But you know, now you're seeing virtually everybody. It seems like every week I check out the trades and there's some other huge movie star doing a series. Helen Mirren, Absolutely. Harrison Ford, yeah. 
Stallone. Didn't Meryl Streep do something, I think? or She's going to be doing uh, Only Murders in the Building. Right, actually, yeah. Right? You know, so it's just, so the walls have all collapsed. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, it's great. I mean, there's, what, 500-plus scripted shows now, right? Yeah. When you and I were growing yeah. up, there were three networks. Yeah, it was just channels. dozens. Yeah. It was dozens of scripted shows, and that was it. And that was the whole universe yeah. of scripted shows. And it was also, there was a, there was a hierarchy in the business when I started, which is movies were at the top, and television was under that. And there was a conversation that would that would be had with old movie stars at a certain point in their career would be, are they ready to do television? Mm. You know, that was kind of... Sure. And by the way, there wasn't even that much television. To give you an idea, I was on the development team that developed a show called The Golden Girls. Right. And The Golden yeah. Girls... All f- people marvel at that show, and they ask me. They're like, I have a lot of friends that love the show so much, and they always ask me about when it was developed and how that came about, and so forth. And I said, you know, and the most amazing thing about the Golden Girls, all four of those actresses were available. They were all the unemployed. Yeah. That's right. Waiting for an opportunity because that's how few roles there were for a woman who was over fifty years old in yeah. Hollywood, in television or film. You know, imagine now you couldn't put that cast together because there would just be too many competing entities plucking yeah, them off just one too by much one. Available content yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, Gary Marshall, who was you know obviously a great director, Happy Days, some great films, um, used to say about exec- TV executives that TV executives were the only people who were not funny people would tell funny people what to do when it came to television. But in your case, you got to work with some of the greats. You got to work with Grant Tinker. You got to work with the late, great Brandon Tartikoff. Yeah, I was Warren very Littlefield. lucky. You know, um, and I got to watch. Where I really went to school was I got to watch the very best writers and directors and producers in action. I got to go and just sit and watch. You know, I watched the Golden Girls from every draft of the script to the table reading of the pilot where the actresses were all there to the aud- the auditions i saw every one of those four women audition for the role against other candidates i watched um i watched uh i watched every rehearsal of that show and then i watched the camera blocking of that pilot and then i watched the taping of the pilot without an audience and then the taping of the pilot with the uh, with an audience so it was like going to school. I just yeah. learned how these really great performers and producers and writers and directors would collaborate, and I just tried to soak it all up because it was like going to it's like going to graduate school. Yeah, and yeah Jim Burroughs mentions that in his book about just when he was learning the crap. That's just soak it up. I mean, you're on set with some of the greatest thinkers, and you know what can you learn from. Uh, Absolutely. And I used to, you know, one of the things that I was interested in was not being a bad executive. You know, I knew that that comedy writers and producers and directors love to complain about terrible executives and they love to complain about the network. So I would approach it very humbly and say, okay, how can I be the kind of executive that you would admire and respect? What would what are Mm. those characteristics? Tell me about the best executives. Why did you like working with them? What did they do that was different? What did the good ones do and what did the bad ones do? And I just tried to do what the good ones did, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. Was there, you know, Gary, Mar- go back to Gary Marshall for a second, too. There's a term, jumping the shark. Right? Yes. From, from a famous Happy Days episode where Fonzie literally jumps a shark in an episode. Yes, right. And so people use that as saying, okay, this the show has jumped the shark. It's It's gone beyond its... Uh, 
doesn't need to be on anymore. It's just it's a running out of great ideas, right? Right. Was there ever a time being executive where you either stopped somebody from jumping the shark or were unable to stop somebody from jumping the shark on a on a show? Well, that's a great question. I think that what I noticed was, first of all, it starts at the top with an attitude. Now, which is what I noticed was there are two kinds of shows. There are the kinds of shows where the executive producer, the showrunners, as we might call Mm -hmm. them today, the showrunners have a standard of excellence and an aspiration of excellence. And so they're the ones that are staying up late into the evening, rewriting scripts. I remember, you know, the, the Cheers was one I watched especially closely because I admired it so much. And I remember reading a first draft came to my desk of an episode of Cheers, and I looked at it, and I read it, and I'm like, this is one of the best scripts scripts I've ever read. Now, every day there would be new pages, right? And they'd be different colors, right? So the next day, I get a script, and it's half the, th- the thickness of the first day. It's only act one. They have thrown out the entire first draft and they're rewriting the episode from scratch because it's not good enough, because they think it can be better. So that aspiration to excellence was something that the very best had. And if you don't have that, you're sunk. You know, yeah. I, re- I remember there was a, one of the first things that one of my great bosses and mentors, Warren Littlefield, said to me was, yeah. he said, David, we're going to assign you to a show, and there's going to be a showrunner on that show. And let me tell you something. If, if there isn't somebody lying awake at 3 in the morning on that show, worrying about that show, you don't have the right showrunner on that show. You know, so yeah. it starts with that. It starts with an aspiration of excellence. There were plenty of shows that did not have an aspiration of excellence, and you knew the difference. And at NBC, we would chase the showrunners that were really talented and had that standard, that Mm -hmm. aspired to it for themselves. And, I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. There's a guy, you know, there's the new Night Court on now. Yeah. And I was on the original Night Court. And I had the honor and privilege of working with Reinhold Wiggy, who was the late, great showrunner of that show. And I went in as a timid baby executive just tiptoeing into his office and he was a mysterious guy who kept his office lit like a nightclub it was dark you know he he had a huge he was a diabetic man he had a huge bowl of candy in the Mm -hmm. middle of his desk and he just continuously eat these Mm -hmm. fun size chocolates and he would just talk to me you know and i'd listen i didn't do much talking i just listened and i asked one of a young writer who worked for him what's it like to work for Riney as a writer and he said well let me tell you let me give you an example he said what you do with Riney is you write a draft and then it goes to him and he writes his notes in the margins of the mm-hmm. script and uh, since we're on podcast can I use a bad word sure okay so so they circled he said one day a draft that I sent to Riney came back and he circled all the dialogue on one page of it and he wrote in his handwriting this actually smells like shit. <laughs> like, and I realized, like, you know, now, not the most diplomatic yeah, way no, to communicate one of your writers, right. but it really told yeah, you it, so much about Riney, about right. what his standards were, oh, about yeah. what he was aspiring to. And I'm sure that the dialogue on that page wasn't very yeah, good. You know, sure. Riney wasn't cruel on spec or something like yeah. that. And so I think when you're talking about Jump the Shark, the great showrunners are too quality oriented to let that happen and when they see that they really have come to a dead end then they do like what jim brooks did on mary tyler moore show they say 
let's go out on top. Yeah. Now, another way, what the Cheers guys did was actually different because I was thinking, you know, how mu- how far can you go? Well, it turned out fortuitous in a way that Shelley Long decided to leave the show so she could be a movie star because right. that was the career ladder yep. in those days, right? So she leaves the show and they have to come up with a new character. And they go out and they create the character of Rebecca. And Kirstie Alley kills it. Oh, yeah. And they have five more years of fresh material. And I know I was already gone from NBC by the time that that show went off. It ended because the writers of that show, who had an amazing standard of excellence, basically said, you know what? It's time. And Seinfeld did the same thing. You know, the great ones that care, they do the same thing. And then sometimes it becomes, if you have a different kind of management on a show, it becomes a question of just sort of stamping out the, you know, the, the waffles, and they'll just keep it going as long as the checks come in. Right. And then you've got to be smart enough as a network to just say, it's time to cut bait, you know. Because there will be forces that would keep a show going forever and make it terrible just because it might make somebody a few more dollars. But um, if you're a smart network or studio you have to you have to keep that from happening and also it damages the it damages the asset you know i think that's what happened with roseanne when everything went haywire on roseanne and they did you know crazy convoluted plots and stuff it devalued the brand of what was really one of the great shows of of its time sure but cheers was able to sort of extend cheers with Frasier, right? It wasn't really... Right. It was rare, because you don't usually get... You get a Joey, right? Where you get one yes. character. It's, okay, it doesn't really doesn't really work as on its own. Yeah. But well, Frasier did. It did. It did. You know, it's... it's. Remember, he was actually one of the more minor right. characters on the show. Right. In fact, crazy coincidences, the, the... I was... One of the things that I had to do when I applied to, for my job at NBC was read several scripts. And one of the scripts they gave me was a two-parter that ended the third season on Frasier. Actually, no, sorry, the two-parter that ended the second season on Cheers, and it was the a two-part episode that introduced the character of Frasier mm. Crane. And um, they asked me for my notes on the script, and I had never given notes on any script, so they'd given me this small stack of scripts, and they said, give me your notes, and I wrote notes on all of them but on that script i just said i have no notes on this script i don't think there's any suggestion i could make that would improve it i would leave it exactly as is to this day those are the best notes i've ever given on any script oh wow yeah so fraser was just well so but one of the things to keep in mind about fraser was the charles brothers were really ready to retire from that show and probably from the business truly at that time they had made so much money. They had made. They'd done such an amazing artistic job. They didn't need to work anymore, and they wanted a rest. Uh, but you had a next generation of of writers: Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel, who you know had not yet hit the big time. And so you had fresh blood creatively. You had a character full of richness and depth and potential and nuance and a concept developed that could could keep that going. So you sort of had all the elements. And what I learned after a while, like I have friends who are wine drinkers that say you shouldn't buy vintages, you buy storage. Mm-hmm. You know, like and I think in in television you buy execution. You know, I I don't I my favorite show of all time is about a single woman who worked at a TV station in Minneapolis. And if I gave you that description and those characters described, there's nothing about that that necessarily made that a hit show. 
It was a function of of execution, how well those characters were written, how well those stories were written, how well those those actors performed those roles and those scripts, how well directed it was. So I think, you know, when Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel say, we love this character and we want to do this show, I would, you know, I'd go with it. You know, even though you might be a little skeptical. Because, by the way, yeah. fun fact, Fraser Crane was the lowest testing character on Cheers. Yeah. Well, he was a different character on Fraser, though, to me, anyway, mm-hmm. from watching it. Right? A little was, more dimensional. Yeah. And, yeah. More, yeah. So, and, there was, yeah. and he had a great supporting cast, obviously. That just Absolutely. And the chemistry, there. you know, the magic was there with all that. Now, a sad story. I, I got to know all the writers on that show, you know, because of working on it. And um, one of the most, the classiest, most wonderful men on that show was a guy named David Angel, who was one yeah. of the creators of Frasier. And um, he was uh, one of the unfortunate people who was on that American Airlines flight that went into uh, the World Trade Center. Oh, my gosh. He was on a flight back from Boston to L.A. Totally, yeah. And... Uh, he was on that flight, sitting in first class, apparently on a uh, a frequent flyer miles ticket. Oh wow! Isn't that horrible? That is yeah. horrible. Yeah, well, that was it. And he was a classy, wonderful guy, just intellectual and interesting and unassuming and gracious and uh, super talented. That's amazing. You got to work with just some just amazing people and stuff. And I was really lucky. From there, you went to Channel mm-hmm. One, which was a unique uh, experience. Uh, I know we're we're running short on time, so I want to no problem go through some stuff. But uh, Channel One was was unique. You were the president of Channel One. Chris Whittle was, I think, the founder of Channel One, funder of it. And uh, yes, uh, you yeah. Were in, how many classrooms were you guys in? Or we, schools? Well, were we were in. We had um, Chris Whittle was a genius, brilliant entrepreneur, and uh, well, he and his business partner Ed Winter, who was my boss, put. 350,000 classrooms, wired 350,000 classrooms with a television set, and then had a system in the 12,000 schools that those were in, middle schools and high schools all over the country, to collect via satellite a, uh, a program every night and record it on a VCR and then hit play, and all the television sets in the school would see the show. And so the daily audience of channels one's news content was between seven and eight million teenagers a day and just to give you some perspective on that number seven to eight million teenagers is more teenagers than watched the super bowl last year so you know it was the biggest teen audience that there was and so it was a very exciting opportunity to communicate with such a specific group of people and create a news program that would connect with them and um, we did some very exciting things, and we hired some really talented young journalists, among them Anderson Cooper right. and Lisa Ling, to be our newscasters. And they did an amazing job. And then you worked with Anderson after that at, when you were at CNN, I right? did. When I was at CNN as, um, as the chief programming officer, I, I recruited Anderson to join the network. And there were some people at the network that really understood what I was trying to do, and they understood that Anderson was a really talented journalist. But there were other people that were skeptical because he had hosted a show called The Mole on ABC, which was, even though he had been a journalist for 10 years, he was invited to host this entertainment show. He did mm-hmm. a very nice job of it. Yeah. And some people thought that that should taint him and that he shouldn't, you know, that that, that would be something that would make it inappropriate for him to be a CNN reporter. But I felt... 
and there were enough fortunately my management agreed with me that you know just because he did this entertainment gig for one season doesn't mean it negates 10 years of being an amazing smart right young journalist well it seems i mean journalism seems to have blurred anyway recently right i mean to a certain extent with social media and just i mean you're you have a unique take than most anybody has right you've been in in journalism you've been in media you've been in entertainment you've been in politics what's your take on where journalism is today and where it's where it's going well i worry about journalism in many ways i mean many ways some ways it's better in some ways it's concerning i think what's better about it is that you know it always was a man behind the curtain like the wizard of oz you know we thought that journalists were somehow like holy men and women who made solomonic decisions about news items and the truth is that they're human beings with all the foibles and 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 potential for for mistakes that anybody else in any other profession have and i think that they got away with things for a long time that now that there are you know there's a lot more checks and balances there's just more openness Um, journalists don't have the same power that they once wielded and they don't have they aren't as exclusive as they once were you know there's so many more news organizations there's so many more people with cameras there are so many more ways to get news out uh, for better or worse but i think i think what's concerning is that the economic model Mm. has has really undercut the ability to finance local journalism and you know you look at the kind of scandals that have been happening i mean look in a city like la the corruption at the local government level. I mean, the massive level mm-hmm. of corruption. And that's in a huge city with a huge local media presence. When you get into the smaller communities where there can be corruption, what used to be the check and balance on that was prosperous local newspapers that would have reporters and do mm-hmm. all that. Those are going away, so that's concerning. Now, on the other hand, you have more enterprising journalists that are using social media and and using alternate distribution methods to do journalism. But some of that sort of loyalty to the truth and facts and fact-checking and and prudence is gone. And now behooves the consumer of news to be more careful about checking things and reading other points of view and getting corroboration and making sure that you've got at least a few trustworthy sources uh, that you're following. And a few sources that might contradict what you want to hear. Yeah. Which is really the big difference now is that you can just, you know, you can have news flavored whatever way you want. So if you're a conservative, you may love watching Fox. But every time I watch Fox, I'm concerned because I realize they're just ignoring inconvenient facts and truth that come from the other side. So I'm not sure that's really helping for us to all get into these silos and... um, and not be more um, broad-minded in our thinking and critical in our thinking. Yeah, I think we have to watch a lot and read more. Yeah, just be uh, more aware of it. But, Absolutely. But I think there's opportunity in that, just given the fragmentation of of it all. It's a little bit different than just having three. Well, the barriers to entries are gone, which is yeah. good. Yeah. You know, like it used to be back in my day. You know, so often when people talk to me and want advice that are just starting out in their careers they'll ask me what I what they should do. In the old days, 
it was all about these gatekeepers. You know, could you get into this film school? Could you right. get this job at NBC? Could you get one of those precious, priceless jobs at a movie studio? Could you get this opportunity to work with a big director? All those things are still opportunities, but they're far from being the only ways to get in now. Right. You know, I would tell every young filmmaker now, start shooting a, a movie with your phone yeah. and put it on YouTube. That's the way to break in now. People are chasing after, you know, the whole influencer world. You know, those are the that's the stepping stone today to get into the creation of content. You know, I would have been my career would have started at age five if yeah. there was social media when I was growing up. Yeah, with a phone, you can do yeah. a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, tell us when we're running short on time. Tell us a little bit just about what you're you're working on now. And um. I, I do a few things now. Um, one of the things I was telling you about before we started the broadcast was. Uh, there's a movie I'm really excited about that I've been developing with a partner, Casper Dogard. Uh, he and I have uh, put together a, um, based on a book that was written by Ryan Holiday um, called Conspiracy. It tells the story of the lawsuit that Hulk Hogan brought against Gawker during the 2010s. And, um, and one of the things that's very... Uh, interesting about that story is that the lawsuit was secretly financed by Peter Thiel, the, mm -hmm. the internet entrepreneur and billionaire right. who gave uh, Hulk Hogan the resources that he needed to go to trial, which is normally something that only you'd have to be a double-digit millionaire to be able to afford. Right. And uh, brought down and bankrupted Gawker.com, which of course was something that delighted um, Peter and Hulk Hogan but also raises some very profound issues about about that kind of power and um, and influence and um, and a world in which that kind of thing can take place. So um, it's a great story. We're very close to having a couple of very famous actors attach themselves to the project, and I hope that within the next few months there'll be an announcement about the attachments of those actors and about the project getting made. Well, we look forward to hearing uh, about it, and I wish we had more time to spend with you. I, fortunately, I get to spend more time with you because I know you, but uh, our audience uh, got to hear briefly about your just amazing career. And so we really appreciate you coming down here to our uh, humble studio, OC Talk Radio, with Paul Roberts and myself. And we have Johnny Gutierrez in the, in the room, too, our senior vice president for the chamber. Thank you, Paul and Johnny and Ruben. It's been a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's been fun talking. And uh, I hope that people who are listening are encouraged who are pursuing their own yeah. dreams. Well, we're getting it out to our uh, – we have some great universities here that have some film students and TV students and uh, would love to hear your story. And so hopefully they get to hear it today and in on our – our future uh, uh, website as well. So Great. thank you, David. Thank you for, for everything over the years. Appreciate my, it. My pleasure. And thank you to our audience. Thank you for being on. We appreciate it. Well, there you have it. One more reason to tune in each and every week to meet our community, the Hispanic business community here in Orange County. Powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio, streaming live from our studios here at the University of California, Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.